Well, when you arrived at church this morning and I hope were greeted by someone and had the chance to greet someone, what did you say? You probably said, hi, hello, good morning, g'day, you know, how are you going? The 21st century coastal version of a greeting. But for 2,000 years, Christians have actually greeted each other with a different greeting, which goes like this, the Lord be with you, to which there would be a response, and also with you. Some of you have been around that tradition. Now, to us, that sounds a bit weird culturally, so we just go with the g'day, brother, how are you going? Uh, but there's something kind of weirdly beautiful about how Christian that greeting is, because it gets to the heart of what the Christian faith is about, which is relationship with God. Not a bunch of rules, not a bunch of boxes to tick, but to have intimate, personal relationship with God who is with you. The resurrected Lord Jesus said to his disciples, including us, Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Which begs the question, what does it mean to have the Lord with you in your life? That's what, true, what is true for the Christian, for the follower of Jesus, to have him with you. What does that look like? That's a question that this part of the Joseph story addresses. You'll see it, open up back to chapter 39 in Genesis, have your Bibles there. You'll see that phrase actually bookends this chapter. Chapter 39, verse 2, we read that the Lord was with Joseph. And at the end, verse 23, that the Lord was with Joseph. So my plan for us is to have a look at two big things that that meant for Joseph, as the Lord was with him, that it might set and shape our expectations of what it will mean to have the Lord with you. Two big things. Firstly, the issue of temptation. And it is the issue of sexual temptation. I just want to acknowledge up front that that is a painful topic for numbers of us. I just want to own that. It is a privilege to walk alongside you in pastoral ministry. I know how painful this is, and yet it is such a significant temptation, among many, but a significant one, and one that the Bible serves up for us this morning. So let's have a look at it, what it means for the Lord to have been with Joseph with temptation. Firstly, it means having the Lord with us doesn't spare us from temptation. It's not as if there's some force field that we get by being kids of the King that will remove temptation. We see that in the incident that we read there, where Joseph, who was a hunk of a man, we read, catches the eye of his master's wife, Potiphar's wife, who doesn't just try and get him into bed once, but over and over and over. Verse 10, and though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants, look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. A blatant lie of sexual assault. 
a lie that she repeats to her husband when he returns, who burns with anger and, verse 20, throws him into prison. I want to consider this issue of temptation, sexual temptation for a moment. It's been said that women need a reason to have sex, men just need a place. Joseph, though, is the complete opposite to that stereotypical bloke, isn't he? And just think about how crazy is Joseph in the eyes of our world? How nuts is he? He's a woman wanting him. As I think about the football dressing rooms, the cricket dressing rooms that I've been over the years and I listen to married men speak of their latest conquests, this just makes no sense that a young single, he doesn't even have a partner to upset man, would not take this woman up on this offer of free sex. Instead, he runs the other way. Why? And how? This is actually a very practical part of the Bible for us. Why does he run? How does he run from this sexual temptation? Uh, There's a scene from a movie, which is now quite an old movie, City Sleekers. Do you remember that movie? Um, As I think about movies that I've watched, I think I've watched more movies from the 20th century than the 21st century. So I've only got older ones to go by. But there's this scene, there's three guys, they're from the city and they, they want to try and kind of discover themselves, find the meaning of life, they go on this cattle driving experience. Um, Billy Crystal is the main guy, very funny guy. And there's this scene where Mitch, played by Billy Crystal, is with his mate Ed, they're on horseback driving cattle, got plenty of time for man-to-man chat. And I've written down the conversation. Ed asks Mitch, what if you could have great sex with someone very attractive and Barbara, who's Mitch's wife, would never find out? Mitch replies, well, it's a big trap. Look what happened to Phil, who's the third friend who has committed adultery in the earlier part of the movie, and we've seen just how messy the consequences of that have been. Ed then asks, well, let's say a spaceship lands, and the most beautiful woman you ever saw gets out, and all she wants to do is have the greatest sex in the universe with you. And the second it's over... She flies away for eternity. No one will ever know. You're telling me you wouldn't do it? That's the footy locker room. That's the way of our world. Mitch says, no. It wouldn't make it all right if Barbara didn't know. I'd know and I wouldn't like myself. Now, There's two motivations that Mitch offers for why he doesn't commit adultery. Number one, consequences that inevitably she will find out, and I've seen it just doesn't go well. And secondly, a, a personal moral guilt that he doesn't want to live with. When we come to the Bible and and ask what are the motivations it gives to resist temptation and particularly sexual temptation we find it affirms the one of consequences. That it says, stop, have a look at where this leads. Uh, Adultery is personified by the Proverbs as being like a woman's lips that drip honey. But in the end, she is bitter as gall. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. 
the Bible says, flee sexual temptation by stopping and thinking about what just a fleeting moment of impulse will mean. It'll have far-reaching and devastating consequences, pictured as the grave. It'll destroy your life. It'll destroy your life of those around you. Think of the consequences is one motivation. But the Joseph account gives an even more powerful motivation, which I want to have a look at with you. Have a look at verse 9, as he's facing essentially the spaceship opportunity, this woman offering free sex. He says, verse 9, No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against you expect him to say, my master, who's been so good to me, who's given me all this responsibility, but he says, how could I sin against God? How could I sin against God? He doesn't talk about any human consequences. He talks about what it will mean before God. Because all sin, firstly and foremostly, is sin against God. It doesn't matter how grievously we wound one another, whatever creature you have sinned against, the most grieved is the Creator. If you know your Bible, you know the famous story of King David who comes to learn this lesson, who commits adultery with Bathsheba, gets her pregnant, tries to cover it up. When that doesn't work, he covers it up by killing her husband. And do you remember as he comes to that moment of clarity, as his sin is before him, And he repents. What does he say? He says to God, against you, you only have I sinned. And you kind of go, man, who hasn't he sinned against, as you think about at a horizontal level? And yet he is brought to see who God is, the place of God. And in the scheme of things, it has been against him and him only. Now, if you hear that, that all sin, no matter who it is against, is actually ultimately against God. If you hear that and you find yourself reacting, it's probably a good indicator that you don't have a picture of God that the Bible does, that he is not as big in your thinking and in your life as he ought to be. Because here's the power of now fleeing from sin, from temptation. It's to have God in the right place. Way more powerful than any worldly wisdom on how to resist temptation. You you turn to the self-help world of how to resist. Whether it's food that you don't want to be binging on, or whether it's a a greater vice that you don't want to go there. When you boil all the self-help wisdom down, it's basically the same. It'll be, here's a bunch of tips and tricks that will develop your willpower, will strengthen your willpower so that you will be stronger to face temptation. The strength to resist is found within. But Joseph doesn't look within to his willpower. He looks without to God. And here is the key. It's not within Joseph. It's without of him. It is God, the God who is with him, the Lord with Joseph. The God before whom Joseph knows he lives and breathes and every word and attitude and motivation is seen and weighed. And so the Bible will offer two motivations why considering God 
will restrain our lives. Number one, a fear of judgment, a right fear of judgment. Paul in the New Testament will say, we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of our lives. Every word, every attitude, every action, everything. An accounting day is coming. Someone is watching the Lord of the universe, the Lord who is with us. Fear of God is a part of the motivation, but there is something even more powerful than fear. Love. This is where Paul moves, actually. He talks about the fear of God. And then, just a few verses later, he talks about how the love of Christ constrains him. The love of Christ constrains, shapes, puts boundaries on his life and what he's on about. Love for God is the most powerful motivation to resist temptation. It's the, uh, the scene of the soccer sideline where you're watching this young man play soccer and you've been watching the team all year and you go, whoa, what's happening today? This, this man, he's playing out of his skin. You know, look at him go. He's playing at 150% and then you work out what's happening. His new girlfriend is on the sideline, right? He's playing for her. To impress her, his love for her has, has changed the way that he's behaving on the field. So that when there's a punch-up, which I don't think happens in soccer, let's say rugby league, there's a punch-up, he stays out of the fight for her. He doesn't talk back to the ref because he knows she's watching. He's so concerned for his love for her that it will actually constrain and shape his behaviour. Love is a powerful motivator. We get an example of it a few chapters earlier. You come back to chapter 29. Jacob, who is Joseph's father, meets this girl, the girl of his dreams, Rachel. He's in love with her, wants to marry her. The custom of the day was that the father set the price of the bride, which he sets as seven years of labour. Jacob has to work seven years before he will get his bride. But chapter 29, verse 20. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Isn't that a beautiful picture of what a man's love for another will actually mean of how he'll handle the work, how it'll shape it. Friends, how will we resist temptation? By having Jesus be your Rachel, a far greater Rachel. By having such a love for him that you want to please him. You want to honour him. You don't want to displease him. You don't want to dishonour him. Having the Lord Jesus who is outside of us is such a more powerful motivation than just looking within for willpower. So how do you have this love? If, if that's the answer, if the answer is not in you, if the answer is in Jesus... And focusing on his... How do, you, how do you get that? By only going over and over and deeper and deeper into the way that he has loved you. Friends, the, the ultimate answer to every problem is always the gospel. The news of who Jesus is and what he has done. Paul, he can't help but speak like this. He says, The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is the power that Paul, that the Bible offers 
to every follower of the Lord Jesus to look to his love and to cultivate and foster a relationship with this one who has loved us so much. We now have the power to live for one who gave his life for us because he actually gives us the gift of his spirit. The Lord with us. Do you see, this is not just scrunch up your eyes and just try and be good. This is look to a saviour who has loved you so much and let that melt you. Let that now mean I actually care about all the situations that no one else will see because he sees it. He's with me. He's before me. Yes, I'll have to face judgment, but more than that, I love him. Look at how much he has loved me. There's the big thing that we see about the power of Joseph to fight temptation, the Lord with him. There are also just a few things worth pointing out. There's wisdom that he applies. I'm going to tease it out some more. Worth paying attention to quickly. Notice he doesn't flirt with sin. He flees from it. He doesn't try and get up as close as possible before stepping over the line. He just runs the other direction. As soon as he knows what's going on with the wife... He won't even go near her. He's putting a fence around what would be sin. Now he gets caught out because there's no one in the home. There is great wisdom here when it comes to resisting temptation, especially sexual temptation, to put fences in place. You work out what that'll look like for you, for Bree and for myself. It's meant that we won't ever have someone of the opposite sex in the home if there is no one else there. And this has led to some weird and awkward moments um, when when neighbours, you know, who, who, they're not. I'm not accusing the neighbour of being Potiphar's wife either, right? We don't need to be. But but in order, I've just gone close the door. Sorry, can't come in. For <laughs> he's not here. Um, we won't get in the car with another person. We, uh, I've got my technology open to be accountable. We put fences in place because wisdom gives sin a wide berth. And there's a warning if you sense that your fence is actually getting smaller and closer. Um, the lingering conversations with someone at work or the gym that you wouldn't want your spouse to know about, the text messaging that you want to hide, that you start deleting, the browser history that you remove. What might you need to stop and repent of this morning? Wisdom gives sin a wide berth. So there's a big thing. Temptation and how Joseph has the power to face it with the Lord with him. Here's the second thing that we'll spend the rest of our time on. The Lord with Joseph in the pit, in the pit. Joseph's story is a long one. It's familiar to many, but here's a reminder of what came previously in chapter 37, the beginning of it. He has a dream that his older brothers will bow down to him, the youngest brother. And he goes and for whatever reason shares this dream with his brothers, which goes down like a lead balloon, right? Verse 20, they're so incensed that let's kill him and throw him into a pit and say that animals killed him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. As our boys were fighting yesterday, we pointed out, well, at least they haven't killed each other yet. They pointed this out, actually. Like, Genesis, brothers are always fighting, killing each other. You haven't gone there yet. It's good. This is what brothers do. 
They stop short of killing him, but they do throw him into a pit where they work out, actually, we can make some coin here because here comes some human traffickers that we can sell our brother to. And they do, and off he goes. Finds himself in Pharaoh's house as a bought slave. And it's there, chapter 39, that we find this language, the Lord was with Joseph, verse 2, so that he prospered. More on this maybe next week about the blessing that comes around Joseph. You see it again in the verse 23, the end. When he's in prison, the warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. The Lord's intimate presence with Joseph did bring prosperity and the pit. It's one of the inescapable dimensions of the Joseph story, the pit. And having been rescued from the pit, he's now thrown into another one, prison, where you think he's actually got a glimmer of hope getting out, but then he's forgotten about for two years. He spends in the pit this time of a prison, unjustly accused of sexual assault. But, verse 20, the Lord was with him, showed him kindness and granted him favour. Much of Joseph's life, his experience of having the Lord with him is marked by being in the pit. Which is not how we would write the story, is it? left to ourselves, you ask, what does it mean to have the Lord God with you? Well, surely as kids of the King, we'll be spared from hardship and suffering. Yet that's not true for Joseph, a righteous man, as it was not true for Job, a righteous man, as it was not true for Jeremiah, a righteous man, as it was not true for Jesus, the most righteous of men. And I think one of the greatest lessons this account has for us is what to do in the pit. Um, And I know that for some of you, you are in the pit right now. For the rest of us, tuck this away because it's coming. But maybe you're in the pit right now because of relational pain with a spouse, maybe connected to sexual temptation, adultery, Uh, relationship broken with kids and strained with parents and friends. Some of you are in the pit of loss. You've lost something, someone that you know you can't get back. Uh, The pit of loneliness, the pit of severe physical, mental illness, which is crippling. And the lights seem to have gone out. And you hear this word of the Lord Jesus that he's with you always. And you wonder what has come of that. Friends, the Lord's promise to be with you in the pit follows you there. The Lord is with you. Do not make the mistake of mistaking darkness for being deserted. He is with you there. What do you do in the pit? I think, um, having had a a taste of my own pit, um, one, let me just offer a couple of things that were helpful. Uh, One was coming to the point of acknowledging just how scary the pit really is. 
It's really scary. It's really dark. And to not feel like um, this is what it really is, but in order to be a faithful follower of Jesus, I need to be stoic. I need to be tough. I got this, Jesus. The Bible gives permission to feel feelings that were made to be felt and to direct them to God. So many of the Psalms are our permission and a blueprint. If you don't know how to do that, read the Psalms. King David, where are you, O Lord? How long, O Lord? Don't imagine that Joseph just sat in the pit twiddling his thumbs waiting for God to make his great move. Chapter 42, verse 21, we read how distressed he was before his brothers. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. We surely imagine that he pleads also to the Lord, the Lord who is with him. There's the first thing I'd offer. Acknowledge how scary the pit is. That's okay. The Lord is with you there, but you have more than just his presence. You have his providence to press into. You have his providence. What's his providence? Providence refers to the way that God rules over every single little detail in the world so that it goes to the exact end that he intends. Every single little detail he providentially rules over that it will get to the end that he intends. Over the seemingly random stuff of life, Proverbs 16, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. As you play backgammon, it seems like such a random game. The Lord is sovereign over those dice. The bounce of a rugby league ball that is so random, the Lord is providentially ruling over them. He's ruling over massive things, nations. Job chapter 12, he makes nations great and destroys them. He enlarges nations and disperses them. And so the rise of Russia, North Korea, China, India, the downfall of the West, none of that has taken God by surprise. He providentially rules over every election, over every conversation, over every action, by every political power to raise nations up and to disperse them. Here, among the many other things that he's provident over, is the key one for us in the pit. Romans 8, 28. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. So here's the big thing to do in the pit. Cry out, you have a sympathetic high priest. He's been there with you. But to trust in the Lord who is providentially working over every circumstance including your pit for your good for an end that will be glorious so when your dreams are dashed when they become nightmares God's dreams never will his dream, his vision of where he's taking the world he'll get it there 
his vision for your life, which if you're in the Lord Jesus is for eternal good, he will get it there. And so here's one of the most important things about God's providence. It's so often unseen. You won't go, ah, that's what God's doing. He's doing that so I can get to here, so I can get to there, so I can... Think about Joseph. It's actually hard to look at just a part of his story without knowing where the story ends. So we're going to come back to it next week, but spoiler alert, God saves the whole world through Joseph. Okay? And he does that by Joseph being prime minister in Egypt, the 2IC to Pharaoh, who through Joseph's wisdom and leadership steers not just the nation of Israel, but those surrounding through the greatest famine that they'd known, and he literally keeps the people of earth alive. He does that because he's prime minister. How does he become prime minister? Because of some connections that he made in prison, that he was forgotten about for two years in. How did he get to prison? Because he was unjustly accused of sexual assault. How did he get to that bedroom? Because he'd been sold as a slave by his brothers who'd thrown him into a pit. Why was he thrown into a pit? Because he had a dream that his brothers would bow down to them. You look at the Joseph story, and easy for us in one sense, because we kind of have it quite condensed. You go, oh, wow. But here's the big thing. Every little piece of your life is providentially ruled by God. And so the big thing for us to do is trust the Lord of the little pieces, who was the Lord of the big picture, of a good and glorious goal. And I know it's hard to do, but think about um, if you were writing the Joseph story, uh, someone gave you the first scene that he has a dream that his brothers would bow down to him and you now had to write the rest of the Joseph story so that it would get to that point, his brothers bowing down. How would you write the story? And you have to be Joseph. You can't just get creative and have fun at his expense. You have to live his experience. You would not write the story the way that we find it here, would you? We, we wouldn't. No way. There'd be quicker ways that make more sense to get his brothers to bow down to him. But God is a far greater story writer than we are. And I know that... That can beg a reaction. Oh, but really, my life, this pit, what's happened? I can't at all imagine how this could be used for good. I can't at all imagine how this could be part of God's dream for glory. But that just proves the point, doesn't it? That your imagination is not as great as God's. And that he is and will work every Peace, every chapter of your story towards the end that he's promised. See, here's the deal, friends. We don't know what our next chapter will hold. But we do, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, know how the final chapter ends. And it ends with the risen Lord Jesus wiping every tear from our eyes. Welcoming us into a new creation that is never to be polluted by sin again. There is no more temptation judging every evil, every unjust accusation. And so, the call, as always, especially in the pit, 
is to trust the Lord who is with you, the Lord of the little pieces who is working it to a glorious end.